Good morning. Uh, welcome to Highlands Baptist Church Online. Uh, we are thankful that you've decided to join us this morning. Uh, my name is Rob Murray. I'm one of the elders here at Highlands, and we want to worship and praise a God whom we can trust. We know a God who loves us, who cares for us, and most importantly, forgives us. So we're going to continue our series this morning through the book of Psalms, and specifically in Psalms 25. We're going to read in Psalms 25, beginning with, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs his sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress, consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul, and deliver me. Let not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you that you are a trusting God. We praise you and glorify you that you are a God that deliver us, uh, a God that forgives us, a God that um, just wants to be worshipped. Lord, we praise you, uh, praise your name. I pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray with Sean as he speaks. Uh, your name be glorified in this, Lord, and that uh, here in this building and throughout the Internet that uh, your words will be heard and that uh, we can see um, those to be touched by what you have for us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to take a Bible and find your way to Psalm chapter 25 this morning. Psalm 25. Have you ever needed to hire a guide? Maybe you were going to go hunting or fishing, and you thought it would be prudent for you to find a guy that could lead you, someone you could trust, to bring you to a spot there in the river or someplace uh, out there in the mountains where you could find uh, what you were looking for. A guide is hired to lead you so that you can accomplish your aims, whether it's hunting or fishing, or maybe you're going on a journey. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of people who've attempted to climb Mount Everest and how they have hired a guide for a steep fee. You can find somebody trusted to do everything in their power to give you um, skill and valuable knowledge about the best route and what to life-saving information about what to expect, insight so that you can reach your destination, you can reach your goal. Have you ever wished that you could 
find a guide for life, somebody trusted to help you navigate the many complexities of life. Life is full of difficult decisions. We often find ourselves in trouble wondering what we should do next. You ever wish that in those situations that you had a guide, somebody trusted, that would give you counsel, that would lead you in the path and the way that you should go? What if God were your guide? What if uh, you were to uh, experience the confidence and the security of having God as your trusted guide in life? That really is one of the main themes that David writes about in Psalm chapter 25. It's a meditation about why we should want to have God as our guide in life and what it looks like to live with God as our guide in life. It explores these various themes, and we're going to work our way through this psalm this morning by looking at those main themes as David discusses them in Psalm 25, which is read for us this morning. The aim of the sermon is really to give us joy in knowing and experiencing God as our guide, in trusting him as our guide. In the beginning of this uh, psalm, uh, David begins by telling us he's really trumpeting his trust in the Lord. And so, really, we learn that we should trust God because he is trustworthy. That's the words that David opens up with. He's presenting to us God as our guide. But before he gets into God's guidance, he stops or he begins by saying, trust God because he is a good guide. That's where he begins in verses 1 through 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. These are words, this idea of lifting up a soul might seem odd to us, but this is an expression of worship. David is, is worshiping God. Why? In verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. So David is worshiping God because he trusts God. He tells us that uh, trusting in God is the way that always leads to glory. In verse 2 it says, Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. So in other words, David is saying that God can be trusted because trusting God never leads to shame. Or if we could flip that around into a positive way, trusting God, we should trust God as our guide because trusting God always leads to glory. The opposite of shame, right, would be glory. The sense of not letting us down is the idea of leading us to glory. And the idea of shame here in the Old Testament is uh, more than just simple embarrassment. Maybe you have an embarrassing story uh, of something in your childhood, right? All of us have stories like that that mom would uh, love to tell uh, people at graduation or some other uh, big event in your life. The idea of shame in the Old Testament goes beyond just simple embarrassment. It really describes the horror of being disappointed or let down by what you trusted in, so much so that you and what you trusted in become a public mockery. That's what David is praying for, that this, this is not what's going to happen when he trusts God, because David worships God and he trusts God knowing that trusting God always leads to glory. You will not be put to shame. Maybe you object to the notion of trusting God like this. Maybe it sounds too fanciful or too romanticized. But think about it. We've all come across stories, right? Whether we're watching them on a movie screen or reading them in a book, where at some point in the story you've got, in in this illustration, we're going to use a guy and a gal, and they're facing some sort of crisis, right? And the story leads you to this dramatic moment, right? The music swells, and in that dramatic moment, the guy maybe turns to the girl and says, do you trust me? And in that moment, you can see her contemplating, does she trust him? And in that moment, of course, uh, in this story, right, in this illustration, she does. She puts her hand in his, and they run off to, you know, escape this this dramatic moment in the story. And our hearts kind of get swept up with the romance of that, with the beauty of that kind of, a person trusting in another person in that kind of moment. 
Of course, there could be all sorts of different scenarios and different objections that you might bring to mind in that illustration, but if we can celebrate the beauty of that between a human and another human, how much more can we celebrate that when God is inviting us to trust him like that? Wholehearted, abandoned trust. Because we are assured that trusting God always leads to glory. Psalm 25 is a wonderful invitation for us to know God like this. Which, as we begin then, looking at David's opening words, when he's talking about his heart just exulting in the Lord, knowing that he is not going to experience shame, ultimately, in the end, with trust in God. God never disappoints in that ultimate end. It begs us to ask ourselves, in what have we been trusting? Think back this last week. In what did you trust for security and protection? In what did you trust to bring you joy and satisfaction? When someone refuses to trust God in its extreme form, David writes about it in verse 3, it shows up as treachery, right? Uh, the treachery of trying to get ahead in career or get ahead in school or get ahead in a relationship by not trusting God. And what, what do we turn to in extreme forms then? We turn to lying and cheating and other aims of treachery. And Psalm 25 is urging us to trust God. Well, as we keep reading, David develops the idea of trusting God by asking for God's guidance. And these two ideas are, are connected, and that's why we see them here in the psalm connected. That when we trust God, it means then it's going to look like something. It's not just a fanciful theory out, out kind of in Never Never Land, but when we trust God, it's going to look like something practical. And what it looks like, according to David in Psalm 25, is it looks like looking to God as our guide, trusting in God for, our, for guidance in life. Or we could say it this way, Trusting God means receiving God's authoritative guidance. And I'm putting the word authoritative in there because it matters. Because we might, in our modern Western age, uh, we, we kind of live with the kingdom of self. We get to choose what we listen to every day. We get to choose you know, what we're going to read and where we're going to go, how we're going to buy groceries, which is part of why this, uh, all these COVID restrictions uh, we chafe at so much, because we really do have kind of these little kingdoms we can live in. And what happens then when we have that cultural bias with us is that we can approach then God as kind of just another choice on our playlist of life. And if we happen to like what we hear from God, then we add him to our playlist and then we'll listen to him. But that's not God. God is authoritative. Look at verses 4 through 7 when David writes about what it looks like to trust God, having God as our guide. Look at the yearning that David has. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. I mean, that, there's, there's authority there that David is asking for God to exert in his life. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from old. Why does David ask God to remember this? Because remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. The idea and concept repeated in this section is the idea of learning or teaching. God being our authoritative guide. In verses 4 and 5, make me to know your ways. Teach me. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. He repeats this idea. And notice in verse 5, David is waiting for the Lord all day long. It's almost as if you've got like students in the classroom waiting for the teacher to show up. And maybe the teacher is late for some reasons and the students are there waiting. David is in this classroom of life eagerly waiting for God to be his guide and instructor in life. Let's just take a moment to list all of 
the reasons that David gives us on why we should trust God as our authoritative guide found here in Psalm 25. I want us to be overwhelmed with the riches that God gives his people by giving himself to us as our guide. In verse 3, we're told that God is faithful. In verse 5, that God is truthful. Again, in verse 5, that he's dependable. Again, in verse 5, that he's a savior. In verse 6, we learn that God is merciful and loving. In verse 7, we learn that God remembers sinners according to God's steadfast love and for his goodness. In verse 8, we're told that God is good and he is upright. So good and upright that what he does is he instructs sinners. In verse 9, we learn that he's an instructor. In verse 10, again, God is loyal in his love and in his faithfulness. Again, in verse 11, we are told that God forgives. That's just looking at a section of Psalm 25. These descriptions of God are just piling up under the pen of David, showing us and proving to us and compelling us to trust God. It's really glorious. Do you see the majesty and the glory of God in these descriptions? And again, Psalm 25 is inviting you to trust God as your authoritative God guide for guidance in life. You might wonder, well, how do you look to God for guidance? How, how do we receive God's guidance then? Does God send little telegrams? Does he give us dreams and messages? Are we supposed to find a quiet place outside and listen to the leaves blowing in the wind and discover God in these ways? Well, it's really nothing that kind of mystic. In fact, according to Psalm 25, it seems that David receives God's guidance through confession in verses 6 and 7. He receives God's guidance through humility in verse 9. And he's receiving God's guidance in verse 10 by living in God's covenant, which we're going to understand is really all that God has given us through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was inaugurating, he's the one that brings to us this New Testament, this new covenant in his blood where we find the forgiveness of sin. That's the Christian gospel. In verses 7 and 8, Right? He learned, he, we learn that God guides those who are humble. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. Because God is good and upright. Do you see that? Because God is good and upright, he instructs sinners in the way. Maybe the idea of God taking interest in sinners is just kind of commonplace news for you. Maybe you've heard it from being a child and it's just kind of grown stale to you. What kind of people do you seek out to instruct? I mean, if you had a, a topic that you were going to teach and you were going to be able to handpick the people in that classroom, who would you choose? Would you find the worst of humanity? And would you try to fill your classroom with those people? Or would you perhaps try to find those that, you know, you like, those that kind of you have lots in common with, those that make you feel good because they nod a lot when you teach and they seem to receive what you say and really teaching them is easy. But God is so good and upright, the people he seeks out are sinners like you and me. It's wonderful. This is the Savior we have. This is the guide that, that we are presented with in Psalm 25, a God who, who delights in giving guidance to sinners like you and me, mess-ups like you and me. The humble confession of sin is the first step to experiencing that guidance. Do you have sins of your youth that haunt you? Or you wonder what you should do? Well, according to David in Psalm 25, we're told to cast ourselves into the steadfast love of God in humble confession of our sin, knowing this, that God is the one who delights in instructing sinners. To me, this is really the most fan one of the most fantastic themes of the psalm. I'm trying to convince you and to persuade you to trust God as your sovereign guide for life by 
using David's words and trying to encourage you to trust God because David did. Uh, uh, one of the children of God from ages past trusted God. And, and I'm trying to encourage you with those words. But maybe the best way for us to be motivated to trust God is to simply reflect on the amazing and wonderful, mind-boggling reality that David writes about God in that God gives himself as a guide to sinners. Which really means this. That means God can be all of our guides. There's not one of us that could say, well, God is out of reach then. He's not going to guide a person like me. Because God delights in guiding sinners. This is the God we're presented with in Psalm 25, the one that you're being invited to trust today. Look at verse 10. When God is your sovereign guide, the path that you walk in life is described as being full of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. At the end of verse 10, we learn that access to God as our guide is based on God's covenant, not yours. You see it? Uh, This is maybe one of those phrases in your Bible reading in the morning where you come across and you read it and it sounds biblical and sounds kind of neat, but really what does it mean? When it says, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, maybe you're wondering, how do you keep God's covenant? Well, this is good news for us because this teaches us that we don't earn God as our guide. We don't impress God to be our guide. It's, we're not trying out like some cosmic edition of American Idol or America's Got Talent, trying to get God to notice us so that we can earn his goodwill and he will then choose to be our guide and we can trust him. But our claim, really anyone's claim on God, on God as our guide is entirely based on the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what he's writing about in verse 10. For those who keep his covenant. How do we keep God's covenant? We respond to God in humble confession of our sin and receive the mercy and grace he gives us. That's how we keep God's covenant. We receive all that he has promised for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So again, just get this straight. According to Psalm 25, God is so gracious, so merciful, that he delights in instructing sinners. And what he does is he makes a covenant for sinners to know him as authoritative guide, as their God. Look at verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Does that resonate with you? I mean, have you woken up this morning just full with your heart of guilt because your sin is great? Maybe it was from a, a lifetime ago or maybe it was from yesterday. But trusting God as our guide in life is all about God's glory. Do you see it in verse 11? For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. God delights to show his glory. He delights to show his grace, his goodness by forgiving sinners. But too often we want God as a guide in our life for our namesake. We want success for our namesake. We want to be delivered from trouble or affliction or a guilty conscience for our namesake with little or no regard to God. We forget that God is the sovereign one. When we think like this, we have life backwards. We exist to bring Him glory. So trusting God as our guide in life means that we order our life around bringing God glory. And living like this will never disappoint. Maybe you think that's too fearful. Maybe you think life isn't going to work out well for you. It's going to bring you shame and dishonor. And in an earthly sense, it might. But friends, as we continue to read through the Christian Bible, we discover that in the end, God has unimaginable glory reserved and waiting for all those who confess faith in Christ. Living like this, living with God as your guide, it might appear for a while that it leads to shame and dishonor in this earth. 
But friends, this is not the re- this is not the end of the story. The path of trusting God leads to eternal glory. David isn't finished. He continues to write in verses 12 down through 15. He asks the question, who is the man who fears the Lord? Now, if you're reading this, it might seem like David is just kind of shifting gears, jumping from one idea to another, but all of these are related. The way we grow trust in God for tomorrow is by trusting him for today. What does that look like? Well, in verse 12, we learn that trusting God as the authoritative guide means that we fear the Lord. So God guides those who reverently listen to his counsel. And this may seem obvious when you hear it, but too often what is common sense really, right, is not common practice in our lives as Christians. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Verse 12, him will he, will God instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. In verse 12, David is describing the person God instructs as someone who fears the Lord. So earlier it was someone who is humble, humbly confessing their sin before God, now receiving God as authoritative guide. And also it looks like this, fearing the Lord. Or those who fear the Lord are those who enjoy the guidance of the Lord. You might find it interesting in verse 14 that the friendship of the Lord is, descri- is talked here. And the friendship of the Lord is connected with the fear of the Lord. Oftentimes, we don't put those two terms or ideas together. Uh, Rarely do people think of a human friend as somebody that they fear. Uh, Rarely would we ask somebody, who do you fear, and then say, are you friends with them? Ordinarily, we kind of think of those ideas contrary, is, is opposed. And often it's because our idea of fear that's being described here by David in Psalm 25 is different than the fear we often think of. Uh, When we think of fear, we think of like fear of snakes or spiders. Uh, Fearing God is not like that. To fear the Lord describes a deep reverential awe that hears and obeys God as the sovereign authority of our life. And we know this in our practice in life in different ways. Uh, For instance, think of it this way. If you were given a cancer diagnosis and you had a consultation with a surgeon, you would you would want that surgeon to be your friend in the one that's offering you help and care but at the same time you would fear that surgeon not like a snake or a spider and if you're not afraid of snakes and spiders and pick something else you wouldn't fear that surgeon that way you would fear that surgeon in this way the surgeon's words would carry great weight what what he what he or she tells you would be in, would be incredibly significant it would affect your life it would affect your thinking it would even change your decision making it would change your behavior you would fear that surgeon Interestingly, verse 14, what David is doing is connecting the friendship of God with those who fear the Lord. They're not at odds, those ideas. Our enjoyment of God and his glory is enhanced through our fear of the Lord. I remember years ago being on the top of Mount Evans and, uh, with, with my young children. They were, they were little. Uh, I remember Ethan being just a little, kind of, a little guy, little legs and big mountain. And we drove up to the top and you kind of walk up that little path to the very top of the summit. And there's some places there where the rocks kind of fall off sharply. And I remember telling my young children, particularly Ethan at that time, because he was the youngest, you need to pay attention to my words. When I say stop, you stop. And I remember looking into my eye, the eyes of my children saying, if you don't listen to me, if you slip and fall here, you might die. 
and I could see their eyes get big and this sense of sobriety and, and the weight of, whoa, okay, we're, we're going to listen to what Dad is saying. We're going to hear him. That fear kind of seeped into them and it changed the way they behaved. They weren't playing tag at the top of that mountain. And because of that fear, we enjoy the grandeur and the glory of standing on top of a mountain together. And the same is true for our experience of God. Fear of God like this does not destroy deep experiences of relationship with Him. It enriches it. It deepens it. And it strengthens our trust in Him. Sometimes we might miss out on enjoying the friendship of God because we are just simply not willing to live in reverence to Him as our sovereign. In other words, we can't say we want God as our guide in life, like David has expressed in Psalm 25, if we will not live in reverent obedience of him as our sovereign. I remember learning to snow ski. I wanted to enjoy the thrill of downhill skiing. I had snowboarded before, and and now I was taking some ski lessons as part of this, this promotion. But ski school is only useful if you listen and obey your ski instructor. And so when I remember my ski instructor talking to me about French fries and pizza, right? Pizza wedge is put your skis together to slow down and to speed up, put them next to each other like French fries. I know it sounds silly, right? I could have laughed and mocked the teacher because of what he was saying was silly and you know, idiotic sounding, French fries and pizza, whatever. I'd just gone off the mountain on my own and I probably wouldn't be standing here today. Or I could fear that teacher in a sense of taking his words to heart and learning, not disregarding it. The same is true for our relationship with God in the Christian life. We receive God's guidance inasmuch as we fear Him, as we give His words weight, as we hear His counsel, as we walk in His ways. Well, finally, in verses 16 to 22, David writes about the deliverance that is experienced when we trust God's guidance in life. And David sets this theme up in verse 15 when he says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. And trusting God means that we look to God for deliverance. Trusting God means that we look to God for deliverance. David needs God's gracious intervention. He needs his attention because, and look at verse 16, David describes his condition as this. He's lonely and afflicted. Do you feel lonely and afflicted today? David's not writing about trusting God in a theoretical sense. He is in distress. He needs God now. I'm not sure exactly what, a condition, what, what uh, circumstance was happening in David's life that caused him uh, to write these words. But there's really numerous occasions in David's life where he, that, that could be the cause of this. There's occasions where he was in deep distress over his own sin. He, he writes about that in verse 17. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. The troubles of his heart might be, according to Psalm 25, where he, earlier in verse uh, 7, remember not the sins of my youth. Maybe it was just this, this uh, unrelenting kind of guilty conscience, regret in his life over sinful choices he's made. And some of those choices are recorded for us in the Scriptures. Maybe the distress he's feeling in verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble, forgive all my, all my sins. Maybe it's uh, the sense of just uh, what was happening uh, later on in life when he was being driven out of the city in humiliating fashion from his son. Of course, those that were looking on in those occasions might have looked and said, David, you're an idiot to trust God. Look at the shame you're experiencing. It certainly doesn't look like it turned out well for you, David. 
But David here is unrelenting in his trust of God as his authoritative guide, and he looks to God for deliverance. This is good news. That God delivers sinners. How do you are naturally inclined to treat those that make stupid choices? Um, parents, uh, try it out on your own heart. When, when your child makes a stupid decision, does something dumb, and they face the consequences of it, often our internal reaction is that, I told you so, right? That inclination in our hearts, that kind of, I told you so, you had it coming. That's not God. What does God do with those that are in trouble and in distress, feeling their hearts in turmoil, even over their own, their, their own uh, regret and turmoil of, of sin, uh, sin they've done? What God does is he rescues. He is the one that saves. God, G, uh, David describes God here as a savior. A God who forgives all of our sins. It's like David's sins just keep coming back to haunt him. Maybe you feel like that today, shame and guilt, embarrassment about a sinful past. Again, we're reminded that David, regardless of, of, of our past, regardless of our sins, we are much like David. And David finds comfort in God's steadfast love. David finds relief, relief from the burden of his conscience in verse 18 because God is the one that forgives all our sins. That's the covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ. I wonder today, what strategy are you using to quiet your own soul? What plan do you have to silence your guilty conscience? God guides sinners out of sinful guilt through the forgiveness found in Jesus. Some in our world try to escape a turmoil in their conscience by using substance to deaden or temporarily silence guilt. Others trying to use distraction, maybe with a hobby or some other forms of entertainment. Maybe you just work a lot, trying to, trying to accomplish some sort of internal sense of, of satisfaction, of a job well done, or a career advancement to silence this internal guilt. Psalm 25 shows us a better way. Do you realize that when God is your guide, He leads you along a path of forgiveness of all your sins? Cry out to God in humble confession. Receive the joy of God's forgiveness. That's the kind of guide that God is for David. God delights in guiding sinners. There's one truth I want for us to walk away from in Psalm 25. It would be that, that God delights in guiding sinners. Would you trust him and let him be your authoritative guide? David's admission and confession of sin is a good reminder for us about the dreadfulness of sin. Right? Sometimes we can become casual or we start to think of sin commonly maybe it's because we find it a recurring sin in our life and instead of turning from it in confession we just say well i guess we'll just get comfortable with it but that never works out that's not god's plan god sent his son to deliver us from the dreadfulness of sin from the penalty of sin sin never improves our lives we were fools to think it does and too often we do in fact this past week if we were all honest we would all have to probably say, yeah, I believe that lie again, the same lie. Sin does never, it never improves our lives. For the child of God, sin always ultimately will bring distress and inner turmoil. And that's the goodness of God. Because what God is doing is he's, grand, he's, he's offering us himself, leading us out of that guilt through the, through the blood and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Was there sin on your conscience today? 
The answer is found in God who delights to guide sinners. A God who considers our affliction and forgives all our sin, verse 18. A God in whom you can take refuge, verse 20. You know, it's impossible to take refuge. You see the wording that David uses. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. It's impossible to, to feel safe in a place that you fear. It's impossible to have the sense of, of well-being in some place that, that, that where you feel guilty. And what David finds in, verse, in God in verse 20 is the safety and the comfort of having God as his guide. A God who guards his soul. A God who delivers him. A God who promises that he will not be put to shame because he takes refuge in the Lord. Really, what we find here is that if our confidence is anywhere else other than on God, we will ultimately be ashamed. And there's not time to unpack all the wonderful truths in Psalm 25 in every way or to see how they tie all together with the full story of God's redemptive plan through the scriptures. But as Christians, as we continue to read through our Bibles and we get through to the end where we start to see God's plan for his people, when he is going to make all things new, when he promises us an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, something that God is keeping for us, preparing for those who know him through repentant faith. Well, friends, and we as Christians can look with confidence at one another and assure one another that, yes, God is our God. He is guarding our soul. He is delivering us from the the horrors and the shame of, of guilt of sin so that we can take refuge in the Lord. For what or in what or who are you waiting? And what kind of Savior are you waiting for? In Psalm 25, David is pointing us to God. If our confidence is anywhere else other than on God, we will ultimately be ashamed. Well, in verse 21, this final verse, David expands his request for all to know the deliverance of God. I mean, earlier he's writing about in the first person, uh, like in, in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Uh, in verse 18, consider my affliction. Uh, in verse 19, consider how many are my foes. It's, it's a very personal psalm, very personally worded. But then in verse 22, it, it, it almost seems like, how does this fit? Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now he's turning to this national uh, view uh, for the people of God. Redeem Israel. Israel being a reference to all of God's people, uh, God's covenant people. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And you might get to the end and think, well, hang on, David. Is this a prayer for God to be your guide or is this a prayer for God to be the, 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 um, the guide for, for his people? And the answer is, it's, yes, it's both. David is able to desire for the entire nation to know God as guide because he has experienced God as his guide personally. I want to encourage, um, I know the, the analogies here are stretched some. Uh, I, want, I want to take this to the extreme. But in family units, fathers, I want to encourage you as fathers to follow the pattern that David has here of experiencing God as his personal guide and then having a heart that yearns for those under his care to know God as their guide. And dads, really the best thing that you can do for your family to invite them to know God as their guide personally for themselves, your children, those that are under your care and your family, is for you as a, as a, as a man to walk before God in this way, with humble confession, fearing the Lord, receiving his counsel as authoritative, trusting in him to be the one that delivers you from the burden of your guilt for sin, finding refuge in the Lord. Be a man who does this. 
And then out of the delight in your own soul of knowing God like this, the friendship of the Lord in that way, invite your family to enjoy God as well. It's interesting the term that David uses in verse 22. He says, redeem Israel. This term of redemption is a term that was descriptive of delivering somebody back out of slavery. It would have, for an Old Testament reader, for an Israelite reader, would have reminded them of the story of Exodus when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. This would have been the word, that would have been the story, the major storyline that would have come to mind. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, it says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's what God set out to do for Israel. That is what he did. We read about it in Exodus. But in the New Testament, as a New Testament reader, we're not waiting for God to deliver us from Egypt, so to speak, in that way. But as in the New Testament, the same term, redemption, describes the mighty acts of God done for us when he delivers a repentant sinner from the slavery of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, the power that God demonstrated in Exodus over Egypt with the plagues is no less the same power that God demonstrates through Jesus in his great saving acts accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection which is why Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this is the central message of Christianity. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're intrigued with the idea of, of having a guide in life. I want to be clear that you don't confuse the idea that you can have God as your guide in life if he is not your sovereign savior. What, what, if you're not a Christian, for God to be your guide is an invitation for you to confess and repent your sin and trust entirely in Christ to be your substitute, to be the one that brings you to God, that brings you friendship with God. Do you know God in this sovereign, saving way? If not, it would be my hope that you would turn to God and put your trust in Him. Find a Christian friend that you can speak with about this more. Find a a copy of God's Word and begin reading it to learn more about a God who delights in guiding sinners like you and me. And Christian friend, I hope that you be comforted that through Christ you are remembered today by God according to His steadfast love. Not according to your sins. Let, Let the amazement of that just wash over you again and cause you to to cling to God as your guide in life even more. Keep worshiping God this week by trusting Him. Fear the Lord this week by giving weight to His Word in heeding His counsel, listening to His counsel, and then living in obedience to it. Knowing this, that we as Christians, when we walk through life with God as our authoritative guide, trusting in Him, it always leads to glory.